Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 42, The Godfather. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you want to support the show, there are a couple of ways that you can do that. One of the best is to leave an iTunes review. If you listen to the podcast on an iPhone or iPod, just open up your podcast's app, search for this show, and when it asks you to write a review, just click on the stars. It pushes the show up the iTunes rankings and is a great way to help get word out about the show. Special thanks this week to our newest pioneer, listener Michael. Thanks. I couldn't do the show without you. In our last episode, we got properly into all the issues that were affecting the New Netherlands in the 1630s and early 1640s. It was suffering from economic depression, it couldn't attract colonists, and its incompetent director, William Kieft, got it stuck in a pointless war with the local Indian tribes. Now, the Dutch didn't like blood. They were businessmen, and blood is a big expense. Kieft could not last. A man in that position can't afford to look ridiculous. It's no small wonder that he was recalled. The colony needed a person of great ability to fix the damage that had been done. A godfather, of sorts. The man selected to fix the damage, who arrived in the colony in 1647, was Peter Stavacent. Stavacent was born in the Netherlands around 1612. He received an education and joined the Dutch West India Company in 1635, during his early 20s. He rose quickly through the ranks, and in 1642, aged 30, he became governor of Curaco, an island in the southern Caribbean about 40 miles off the coast of Venezuela, which is still Dutch territory. He would spend two years in command there before his time was cut short. In 1644, he led an unsuccessful assault upon the Spanish fort of St. Martin, which resulted in him receiving a cannonball to the right leg. It had to be amputated, and he spent the rest of his life with a peg leg. It would have made life difficult in the 17th century, but was infinitely preferable to sleeping with the fishes. He returned to the Netherlands, and he must have impressed sufficiently for him to be made director of New Netherland. We've already sort of introduced Peter Stavacent, but that was in our side story of New Sweden. I introduced him as a strong character, and that is certainly true. He was stubborn and had a big personality. He was determined, courageous, a dedicated Calvinist. He was also able and a capable diplomat, he spent his life trying not to be careless. He's a very interesting figure in wider history beyond New Netherland, because he belongs to a very select group of people. He is remembered positively, even though he was, for the most part, a loser. 
Usually, when you have historical figures who lose, they get either forgotten, reduced to a footnote in the histories of the winners, or portrayed negatively. But not Stavasant. In fact, had I not watched The Godfather the day before I wrote this, I'd probably call this episode The Capable Loser. When Stavasant arrived in New Netherland in 1647, he found the place in what has been called its usual state of organised disorder. He had an issue with seemingly everyone and everything in the colony. He disagreed with the colonists about everything, from taxes to morality, from political participation to administration of justice. He had a disagreement with the company over religious toleration and judicial administration. He had an issue with Renzelawicz over the fur trade around Fort Orange, and indeed with all the colonists over trading regulations. It appeared that jurisdictional matters were the source of these conflicts, but that was only how they appeared. The fundamental issue creating tension within the company was twofold. Excessive pluralism within political society, and lack of legitimacy within the government. All colonies had experienced this, but they were both particularly strong in New Netherland, and they aggravated each other. This was understood at the time. We have the following viewpoint from a contemporary magistrate. Quote, The frequent changing a government, or the power of electing a governor among ourselves, which some among us, as we understand, aim at, would be our ruin and destruction by reason of our factions and various opinions, inasmuch as many among us being unwilling to subject themselves to any source of government, mild or strong. It must, on that account, be compulsory or by force, until the governor's authority be well confirmed, for such persons will not only despise, scorn, or disobey authority, and by their evil example, drag other persons along, whereby laws would be powerless, but everyone would desire to do what would please and gratify himself. End quote. It was a tough situation. The people wanted popular government, but were so diverse that it would be impossible to form one that everybody agreed to, and it would just produce trouble. That, at least, was how the magistrates of New Netherland justified their position. Compounding the domestic divisions were exterior ones, as tensions rose between the Dutch and the English on Long Island, which gains a new dimension when you realise that a significant portion of the Dutch population was actually English, and the Dutch elements in the English colony of Plymouth. We discussed the complications caused by English self-government in the previous episode. It would be the dominant political undercurrent for the period of Stavasant's directorship. Whenever reform seemed likely to take place, it was generally done with a twist to keep power in the hands of the elite. For example, when the states instructed Stavasant to have a court of justice in New Amsterdam, This should have been done with elected officials. However, when Stavasant implemented the reform, he made sure that he appointed the officials. 
He also created a legal distinction between the citizens. These were greater and lesser burgher rights. The greater rights were necessary for holding public office, and were reserved for people who held, or their ancestors had already held, office. This right could be purchased for 50 guilders. His administrative and political reforms were only one facet of his greater program of measures, all of which he did in order to improve the public good. Stavacent assured the people that developments were being made which would answer all their questions and solve all their problems. These involved domestic matters to try and keep people and their property safe. Fencing laws were revised and the fire code was made stricter. You cannot underestimate the threat of fire in settlements mostly constructed out of wood. Improvements were made to the state infrastructure, such as repairs to their defences and the construction of the first pier on Manhattan. He also sought to improve relationships with the Indians by making sure that they were paid properly for services that they might perform. However, this wouldn't quite work. The Indians would not just forget the wrongs that had been done to them, and they would wait. Revenge is a dish best served cold. He also ventured into the realm of public morals, reflecting Stavacent's strong Calvinist position by requiring all to attend Sunday services. Stavacent was determined to strengthen the position of the company. He clashed with the patroonship of Renzalawik, fearing that it would gain a monopoly of the fur trade in the north. In response, he seized a village just to the north of Fort Orange, which he named Beaverwick. You may consider this to be an overreaction, but you have to understand, what happened to Renzalawik, it's not personal. It's strictly business. Incidentally, this town is of significance, because it would be Beaverwick that developed into Albany. He also clashed with private merchants in New Amsterdam, and Stavacent made them an offer they couldn't refuse by trying to regulate all aspects of economic life. This upset the state's general, who did not like the idea of internal regulations, thinking that such regulations would disrupt growth. They would also make New Netherland even less attractive to potential settlers. The actions of the company were very much at odds with Stavacent. While he was eager to force the state into all aspects of life, the company was taking a different opinion. They felt that economic freedom was of primary importance to the economic growth of the settlement, and that the state's monopoly on the fur trade was only causing problems rather than being of benefit. The monopoly was rescinded in 1647. But for all this rhetoric, it's important to look for more detailed explanations and hard evidence. If you'll allow me to borrow a phrase from the 1676 classic or the president's men, follow the money. Or in this case, follow the lack of it. 
I've mentioned a couple of times that the Dutch West India Company was in dire financial straits, but I haven't really explored just how bad. This had an awful lot to do with the Dutch stepping back on their monopoly. Simply put, they couldn't afford to upkeep it. The company stopped having its own traders in New Netherland from 1644, and from 1650, it ceased to sell goods directly to the colonists. The company's strategy wasn't working. It needed a new approach if it was going to survive. Commercial activity was put firmly in the back seat, particularly in New Netherland. They were not making enough money in the fur trade for it to be worth the investment. Dutch priorities were their New Netherland colony in Brazil and their Caribbean islands. New Netherland could serve a purpose of supplying food to these colonies, but beyond that they had very little interest. In order to increase agricultural production, they needed to increase the population of the colony. How would they increase migration? The monopoly on trade was one factor which was discouraging people, so it made complete sense that such a policy be dropped. But of course, the matter was far more complicated than that. Trade restrictions have very little to do with agriculture. The policy might encourage immigration, but it would encourage those seeking commercial opportunities, not farmers. What they needed was a way to import people to the colony and keep them as farmers. They needed a way of preventing people from turning to trade instead of agriculture. There was an obvious solution to the problem, and I suspect you can see where this is going. They turned to slavery. Slavery had been a part of the Dutch colony ever since its foundation, but it was only in the late 1640s and 1650s that their imports became regular. The New Netherland slave owners found that slaves taken directly from Africa were unruly, so they developed a system known as seasoning. A slave would be brought over to the Dutch West Indies and stay there for a while. They would teach the slaves uh, European values and wear down their resistance. Slavery in New Netherland was less intense than on the plantations, which may explain why they seemed happier than those brought to New Netherland directly. African slaves became an important element of the New Netherland population. When the English took over the colony in 1664, the population stood at around 8,000, and of those, 700 were of African descent. Not an insignificant number. Now, this is a very uncomfortable topic for me to both research and write about, but it is an important one, and we need to talk about racism for a little bit. Slavery and racism are two evils, often associated, but they're not the same, and it is very important to remember that. While slavery was present in New Netherland, it was done for its economic benefits. It was cheaper to buy slaves than bring over and pay free workers, and there wasn't a risk that they'd turn into traders. This was how the world was in the 1640s, 
and there wasn't a great deal of prejudice there. This led to certain key differences between the stores of slavery which emerged in New Netherland and as emerged in other colonies, and indeed other societies. Slaves had the same rights in court as did a free white man. This is not insignificant. I know I talk about Rome a lot, but it's interesting to note that in the Roman Empire, a state considered the foundation of Western law, a slave could not freely give testimony in court. Testimony was only valid if obtained by torture. There was nothing like that in the legal code of New Netherland. Also, the company was flat broke. It couldn't afford a monopoly on slavery. This led to a bizarre legal situation where slaves could be temporarily hired in a half-free function. It wasn't full citizenship, but they had more rights than normal slaves. It was also possible for blacks to become free, and if they became reformed Protestants, then they could even intermarry and own their own indentured servants. Racial prejudice certainly existed in the colony, but it was not the overt racial prejudice, which we will deal with later in the narrative. That's all I want to say for this week. Let's talk business. I understand what you're thinking. You found paradise in podcasts, had a good trade, made a good living, Apple protected you, and there were podcasts galore, and you didn't need a friend of me. But, uh, now you come to me and say, Don Redfern, give me more episodes. But you don't ask with respect. You don't offer friendship. You don't even think to call me Godfather. Instead, you listen to this episode on the day my daughter is to be married, and you, uh, ask me to do murder for money. Oh, wait, did I say murder there? Sorry. I meant release membership episodes. Well, as it turns out, if you ask very nicely, you can ask me to do extra episodes for money. Just sign up for membership. You can do that by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button, giving you access to exclusive premium episodes. You can also like the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast, follow me on Twitter at History Jamie, and send me an email, the history of podcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next time, and always remember leave the gun, take the cannoli.